Welcome to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Audio Blog, where we strive to share an authentic interpretation of Mason's life work. We thank you for joining us and hope you enjoy the program. So what I'd like to talk about this morning is uh, a phrase, the sacrament of education. And at the outset, I have to make a disclosure that this exact phrase, the sacrament of education, does not appear in Charlotte Mason's writings. Um, but hopefully, by the end of this presentation, uh, you'll understand why I think it's still a useful phrase when we think about Charlotte Mason and her philosophy of education. To give you a little bit of uh, background, though, just so you know kind of where I'm coming from, I was uh, born into the Episcopal Church, and so I was baptized as an infant, and uh, I sang in the choir, and so wearing a, an all but white robe was something that uh, I remember from the earliest ages. But then uh, as I grew older, I kind of wandered from the faith. Uh, but then when I was a teenager, I had a conversion experience where I was awakened to the love of Christ, the lordship of Christ, and the truth of God's Word. And so from that point on, I began to attend uh, Bible churches, and I became an evangelical, and I still uh, absolutely consider myself to be an evangelical. And then in 2005, I began to read Charlotte Mason, and uh, my encounter with the living ideas that I found in her volumes changed my outlook on life, and changed me in many, many ways. And uh, in 2007, I returned to the Anglican Church, which is um, Charlotte Mason's own faith tradition. And uh, so here I am now again, back, the white robe is back after, you know, 40 years. Um, and so through my journey of reading Charlotte Mason's writings, as well as returning back to the Anglican Church, I discovered, studied, and embraced sacramental theology. And then I found many of those elements in Charlotte Mason's own writings. So that's just to give you an idea of my story so you know where I'm coming from. So as I was reading Charlotte Mason's writings fairly early on, um, I began to notice some very profound and beautiful ideas. And these were energizing to me, and I still remember moments when these ideas first crystallized in my mind, and they were so thrilling and exciting to me. For example, this phrase, God the Holy Spirit is himself personally, the imparter of knowledge. And when that thought began to sink in me, it just completely changed my whole concept of what teaching and education is like. This notion, uh, Charlotte Mason said, we conceive of the divine teaching as cooperating with ours in a child's arithmetic lesson. What a dynamic and astonishing idea. I read this phrase in volume two. Charlotte Mason said that ideas emanating from our Lord and Savior, which are of his essence, are the spiritual meat and drink of his believing people. Again, what a profound and beautiful idea. And then, of course, we have this well-known phrase, children must have living books. The best are not too good for them. Anything less than the best is not good enough. And so here are just uh, four samples of, of ideas that are very compelling and exciting, but what, do, is there any kind of relationship between these ideas? Um, why, why does the Holy Spirit, why would the Holy Spirit participate in an arithmetic lesson? Why are living books so important? Are these just kind of disjointed, um, just bits of you know, theory? 
that are exciting, but are they true? What, what basis do we have for, for accepting any of these notions? And so those were questions that, that puzzled me as I tried to dig deeper into Charlotte Mason's writings. And another thing that really prompted me to dig deeper in this area was, again, fairly early on in my Charlotte Mason journey, I, I pronounced these concepts you know, from, from the hilltops. You know, and I, I stood up in front of audiences and I said, you know, these are great and wondrous truths. And yet I recall uh, a moment when somebody deeply challenged uh, some of these ideas. And uh, this person, she brought to my attention an example. She talked about a man who had distinguished himself in the school choir. So he was a, sang in a choir just like me when I was a kid. This man loved reading, devouring the classics of literature as well as adventure novels, and he had a passion for the outdoors, spending days climbing in the wild mountainous countryside. Thus he was ardent and energetic and developed physical strength. He seems to have been a pious young man. Now based on what I had said on the previous slide, I had talked about how all of these different elements of a Charlotte Mason education, like being outdoors and reading living books and singing hymns and church music and running around, that all of these things together contribute to the knowledge of God because all education is sacred, I would say. And so here's a formula, one would think, for a man to become devoted to Christ. And yet, does anyone have any idea who this man is? Joseph Stalin. Joseph Stalin. So I had to ask myself, how is it that I can claim that the Holy Spirit is this agent in education if a man can receive this kind of education and yet turn into one of the most wicked monsters that the world has ever known? And so as I puzzled through these questions, I came to reflect on a concept called the sacrament. And so I'm going to begin with the Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church, which defines, tells us about what the word sacrament means. The word, according to this, uh, the Oxford Dictionary, the word is, is derived from the Latin sacramentum, which was used to translate the Greek mysterion, of course, mystery would be our English word, in the Latin New Testament. Sacraments are thus means by which Christians partake in the mystery of Christ. The fundamental mystery or sacrament, mysterion, is the incarnation of Christ. And depending on that, the church, his body, through which he communicates himself to mankind. So the greatest sacrament or mystery of all is the incarnation of Christ. God became man. This communication is accomplished through certain symbolic acts, such as the washing of baptism, the meal of the Eucharist, interpreted by the Gospels, and the response of faith. So we see a theme here that this mystery or sacrament deals with the interplay between the physical and the spiritual. God is spirit, and yet physically he became man in the person of Jesus Christ. Baptism and the Eucharist are physical acts where a person is washed in physical water, and men and women eat and drink physical bread and wine. So sacrament typically deals with this interface or interplay between the material and the immaterial. And the Oxford Dictionary goes on to say that in Christian theology, the scope of what the word comprises has varied widely 
throughout the history of the church. St. Augustine, who defined it as the visible form of invisible grace or a sign of a sacred thing, applied it to formulas such as the creed and the Lord's Prayer. And such a wide application was commonplace for the first 1,000 years of the history of the church. So for Augustine, even the, the creed, the Nicene Creed, he considered that to be a sacrament because it was a sign, kind of a visible sign or a tangible sign of the mystery of the triune God, the mystery of how God became man. And even the Lord's Prayer, Christ's gift to us, teaching his disciples how to pray. Even that he considered to be a kind of sacrament. Very soon, however, after this first thousand years, Western theology narrowed the connotation by regarding institution by Christ as an essential characteristic. So it's rare nowadays to hear people refer to the creed as a sacrament. It's far more typical to refer only to these a very limited set of symbolic acts instituted by Christ himself, such as baptism and the Lord's Supper, when Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. But while there's been a general narrowing in the Western tradition, it has not been complete. And still, throughout all of Christendom, even today, there is still remnants of this tradition of a broader sense of what a sacrament is. And I'll share one example of Alexander Shmeman, a wonderful 20th century Russian Orthodox theologian, who even conceived of all of creation, in a sense, as a sacrament. He said that the world was created as the matter or the material of one all-embracing Eucharist. And man was created as the priest of this cosmic sacrament. And so Shmeman viewed all of creation as a revelation of God. And that we are priests on this earth and we take the material that he's given us and we turn it back and offer it up to him. And so matter becomes a way that we achieve communion with our wonderful creator. And in a certain sense participate even in the incarnation. So if I want to narrow, I'd like to narrow the focus a little bit then moving on from the Oxford Dictionary and moving into the Anglican prayer book and how the, the word sacrament is defined in the church catechism. And we know that Charlotte Mason appreciated this catechism in the Book of Common Prayer because she said in volume six that the catechism gives opportunities for such summing up of Christian theology. And then I have another note here. She says, nowhere can we find a more lucid and practical commentary on the moral law than is found in this church catechism. So this definition that we find in the Book of Common Prayer, while it's part of the Anglican tradition, it still is representative, I think, of a quite broad view that extends into many different traditions and denominations. So I don't think by any means it would be seen as restrictive. And so in the typical question and answer form of the catechism, what meanest thou by this word sacrament? Answer. And you can see some hints of Augustine in this answer. I mean an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace given unto us, ordained by Christ himself, as a means whereby we receive the same and a pledge to assure us thereof. So that's the definition. And I like to, you know, break things down visually, diagram them out. And so I want to kind of tease apart the elements of this definition and display it graphically. So we have this idea of an outward and visible activity. That was the first component of the definition. And this is sort of the material element. And so in baptism, it's obvious that the outward and invisible activity is washing in water. For communion, the outward and visible act is eating bread and wine. And then the catechism talks about how then there's a spiritual grace conveyed. And uh, when we think about grace, again, uh, for my many years attending Bible churches, you know, what, what I kind of got, uh, what, what was repeated uh, 
in, in my church was this definition of grace that was very forensic. Grace was this idea of receiving something you don't deserve. And so the idea was that, that the, because I have sinned, I don't deserve anything from God. And yet grace is where God sort of legally or forensically decides that he's going to give me things that I don't, that I don't merit. Um, and that's a great truth, and it certainly is a dimension of the word grace, but grace extends beyond that. And Charlotte Mason used the word grace in a broader sense than just a kind of legal transaction. And she wrote in the Scale How Meditations, she said that grace is hard to define. The touch of God, an old writer calls it, and perhaps we can go no further. So grace is not only just favor that we don't deserve. Grace is also sometimes when we can feel the touch of God. I mean, have you felt that? Have you had times when, when you sensed that God had touched you? The invisible God, God who's spirit, and yet somehow his touch uh, blessed your heart? That's grace. That's grace. And so in uh, the tradition of, in the Anglican tradition, which was Charlotte Mason's um, that was her expression of faith in baptism. The catechism, or the the uh, the catechism and the articles of faith, say that they that receive baptism rightly are grafted into the church. Faith is confirmed and grace increased. Grace is increased. The idea is that in baptism, there's the touch of God, increasing grace. And then communion, the faithful receive all the benefits of Christ's incarnation and passion. So the idea is the touch of God. Not really stated in the definition, but implied is this idea that there's the real operation of God. God is really operating and acting in these moments. Um, and so we read in the Articles of Religion, by the sacraments, he, God, doth work invisibly in us and doth not only quicken, but also strengthen and confirm our faith in him. And then one extremely important element of the definition is that what I like to, I refer to it as the suitable disposition of the receiver. And the idea here is that, um, to that, that a heart must be ready and open to receive the touch of God. The idea here is that um, sacraments are not magic that affect someone despite a closed heart and despite or in, instead of faith but that God operates on hearts that are willing and open and ready to receive him by faith. And so the Lord's Supper, we read, conveys grace not to everyone, but to such as rightly, worthily, and with faith receive the same. And the means whereby the body of Christ is received and eaten in the supper is faith. And one thing I want to highlight here is that this isn't saying that, you know, faith can be, faith can be as small as a mustard seed to receive and invite and to welcome God's grace. And so um, John Wesley tells the story of how a woman came who was not really open and uh, not really considering herself a believer, not really embracing or understanding the love of Christ, and yet she came forward for communion and had just the smallest mustard seed of hope or expectation that she was going to be entering into somehow the presence of God. And it was during her partaking of communion that this woman then received this dramatic sense, this touch of God, this dramatic sense that Christ died for her. And for the first time in her life, she was convinced that Christ loved her personally and had welcomed her into his body. And so the idea was that just a little tiny bit of faith, and she was able to then be entering into a deeper and richer experience of faith. 
And then the last thing I would highlight is what I call this instrumental unity. The idea is that all of these different components are, are working together. So we might say another way of describing a sacrament might be God promises that when faithful believers perform the visible activity, he will work to convey the spiritual grace. You could even put prayer in this definition. Right? Jesus said, when two or three are gathered in my name, there am I with them. The idea here is that God promises that when we come together and perform these activities, that he will hear us and answer and convey grace. And again, with grace, uh, John Wesley has a similar kind of a similar definition. He says, by means of grace, this phrase means of grace, I understand outward signs, works or actions ordained of God and appointed for this end to be the ordinary channels not the exclusive channels, but the ordinary channels whereby he might convey to men preventing, justifying, or sanctifying grace. All these different dimensions of grace. So if we kind of break it up into these components, this is how I like to kind of visualize it. We have an outward invisible activity, a spiritual grace conveyed, the real operation of God, the suitable disposition of the receiver, and instrumental unity. So I'm going to kind of go back to this diagram as we talk about sacrament and about education. And a phrase that kind of convey, covers all of this together would be means of grace. So let's just, uh, you know, when we talk about communion, we have the outward invisible activity of eating bread and wine. We hear from the articles of religion that the benefits of Christ's incarnation and passion was the grace we receive. God doth work invisibly in us, but it's not to everyone, it's to such as rightly, worthily, and with faith receive it and it all kind of works together in a single act. So a question would be, you know, what I've kind of outlined here of a model of a sacrament, did Charlotte Mason believe these things? So did she believe that there was something special about baptism and communion? We can start there and then talk about other ways that she thought about sacraments. So the answer is she absolutely did. So she wrote, what a thought of joy at the baptismal font of consolation throughout life amid the tossing of the waves of this troublesome world is this of the divine spirit coming to us also in the likeness of a dove. This was in her reflections on the Gospel of John when Jesus was baptized and the dove comes down and she says, what a, that, that's not just a unique thing. She said, what a wonderful thought that at every baptism, the Holy Spirit comes to us like a dove. She makes a distinction between the baptism of believers in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. She distinguishes that from the baptism of John the Baptist. She says the baptism of John was, we know, that of repentance for the remission of sins. There was nothing mysterious or divine in it. Remember mystery, sacramentum? There was nothing sacramental about the baptism of John the Baptist. It meant no more than, I'm sorry, I've done a miss, and will turn over a new leaf. But this sacramental baptism with hidden meanings out of which a man came a new creature because the spirit of God came upon his spirit, this was different. And then she also used uh, sacramental language in talking about communion and the Lord's Supper. She said the meaning to us of the blessed sacrament, the sign and so far as it is truly the sign, the vehicle of that substance, which is the life, depends upon our apprehension of life and meat. So she said, again, she said communion is not just a outward sign, but it's a vehicle as well. So what I found interesting, though, is as I was reading Charlotte Mason's writings, she used this phrase 
the outward and visible sign, inward and spiritual grace, she used this phrase in other contexts besides baptism and communion. And I found that to be so fascinating because these phrases are a reference back to the catechism. And so, for example, in volume one, she's describing math instruction. And she says in the 40s and 50s, talking about, she's talking about the 1840s, not talking about when people were doing the twist, you know, she's talking about in the, in the 1850s, it was currently held that the continual sight of the outward and visible signs, geometrical forms and figures, should beget the inward and spiritual grace of mathematical genius, or at any rate, of an inclination to mathematics. So she, she's applying this sacramental formula and saying people thought back in the day that you could put lots of geometric figures around the room and that outward invisible sign would somehow convey grace and that by children being surrounded by those figures, they would kind of be able to grasp mathematical concepts. Or maybe if that was too much to ask, maybe at least the presence of those signs would give them an inclination towards math. Of course, she didn't accept that. Um, another example in volume two, she says, let us perceive that our relations with each other are the relations of spirit with spirit, and that spoken and written words are no more than the outward and visible signs of ideas spiritually conveyed, and how inevitable, incessant, all-encompassing becomes the presence of God about us. So the idea here is that we're communicating spirit to spirit, but we use the outward and visible sign of, of words. So she uses that sacramental formula. Many other examples. In volume three, she uses the phraseology to talk about object lessons. In volume four, she uses the phrasing to talk about gladness and cheerfulness. And then there's a wonderful quote in volume five, which I'll share about later, which I think is profoundly important. But then there are some additional references that I think are even more significant. I want to linger on those a little bit longer. This is an important reference in volume four. One of my favorite passages, probably top ten passages in, in the six volumes. Charlotte Mason is talking about art, and she says, there are always those present with us whom God whispers in the ear, through whom he sends a direct message to the rest. Among these messengers are the great painters who interpret to us some of the meanings of life. To read their messages aright is a thing due from us, but this, like other good gifts, does not come by nature. It is the reward of humble, patient study. It is not in a day or a year that Fra Angelico will tell us of the beauty of holiness, that Giotto will confide his interpretation of the meanings of life that Malay will tell us of the simplicity and dignity that belong to the labor of the soil, that Rembrandt will show us the sweetness of humanity in many a commonplace countenance. The outward and visible sign is of less moment than the inward and spiritual grace. So she's talking about what we can receive from paintings, from great works of art. But there's a difference between going to a movie and watching the best CGI graphics and incredible music with speakers all around you, and the intensity of the experience just forces itself upon you, and it's inescapable, and you're, you just enter into the movie, and, and it's just, when I watch a movie, I, it sticks with me. I have a hard time even getting it out of my mind afterwards. That's one of the reasons I don't like watching movies. But when you go to an art museum, that's not the same effect, right? When you walk into an art museum, the images don't force themselves upon you. They don't, they don't bypass your, your, your reason and, and just suddenly just give you these dramatic, intense uh, 
impressions. And that's why you don't have people lining up necessarily around the block to go in, into the art museum, because it doesn't have that thrill factor. But what Charlotte Mason says is that there is, though, something that it doesn't come by nature, but through humble and patient study, you begin to see that there's something extraordinary about art and about painting. It doesn't force itself upon you, but through time, you can begin to see it. I was blind to these things. I saw no value in going to art museums. But through picture study with my children and through careful, unintentional, but patient study, the Lord began to open my heart to understand this vehicle of art. And in Thanksgiving of 2016, I had the wonderful opportunity to go with Ainsley, and we went to Italy. And one of our stops was in Florence, and we went to the great Uffizi Gallery, perhaps the greatest art museum in the world. And I was very much looking forward to seeing a painting that Charlotte Mason references multiple times in the volumes, the painting called Fortitude by Botticelli. So when we finally reached that painting, I didn't, I didn't fully understand that there was actually a series of these paintings of the virtues, and Fortitude was just one of seven. But it was the only one that was painted by Botticelli. There were six other paintings by great painters, great painters. And yet six of them were paintings. One of them was something more than a painting. I don't understand the physics of it. It's not captured in screenshots or JPEGs. But standing before Botticelli's fortitude, something special had happened there that was different from the rest. I remember that day in the Uffizi Gallery because I was deeply distressed at the moment, actually. And I had a gnawing problem that was so overwhelming to me that I could hardly think about anything else. I was in a, almost near a state of panic, although Ainsley probably didn't realize, <laughs> realize that. But I, I did my best to hide it. But I was nearly in a state of panic. But then when I saw fortitude, something started to change in my spirit. And it prepared me then for the next room because we walked into the next room and it was probably, it was a very large room and it's probably the single, I'm guessing, the single largest collection of Botticelli paintings that you can find in one place. And still simmering in my heart was this thing that was upsetting me so deeply. And yet I went from painting to painting and I saw one of Botticelli's paintings and there I saw St. Francis and he was looking at the infant Christ. And that face of St. Francis, the tenderness and the suffering love in his eyes as he looked towards the baby Jesus, I saw that face and I saw a face that was not pigments on a canvas. It was a face that expressed more tenderness and more love for our Savior than I think I've ever seen even in a living human being. And God spoke to me through that painting. The outward invisible sign was of less moment than the inward and spiritual grace, and I received that grace. So if we go back to my diagram, the outward invisible activity is viewing the art, seeing the painting, or listening to the music. And in the previous quote, Charlotte Mason said that these paintings can contain lessons from heaven. That's the gift from God operating through these paintings. God is really operating. It's God who whispered in the ears of the artist and inspired him to produce or her to produce this great work. But it doesn't force itself upon us. It's the reward of humble and patient study. But as I reflected on this question of art, still one question kind of 
lingered for me, which is it doesn't seem like a sacrament because how do all the pieces come together? How is the, the, these actions are separated by centuries? A painter painted this thing. Is this just a game of telephone? Was this an inefficient way of God to deliver a message to me? Wouldn't there have been a simpler way for him to communicate than having me look at a painting of St. Francis that's from centuries ago? So then I also want to talk about nature and how Charlotte Mason described nature. In the scale, how meditations, she said, this is her um, commentary on the Gospel of John. She said also that other profound doctrine is born upon us, that nature is sacramental, not only in the sense that it is an outward and visible sign of spiritual things signified, but also that it is a means of grace whereby we receive the same, i.e., a large content simplicity, humility, and healing. Do you see the language that she's using here? Means of grace. This is sacramental terminology. She's using the word sacrament and even the, the formula from the catechism, and she's applying it to nature, to being outside in nature. And she says that there's a grace that we receive when we're inside nature. Perhaps we fail to realize, she says, that nature teems with teaching of the things of God, that every leaf on every tree is inscribed with the divine name, that the myriad sounds of summer are articulate voices, that all nature is symbolic or has been better said is sacramental. Realizing the close correspondence and interdependence between things natural and things spiritual, that God nowhere leaves himself without a witness, and that every beauteous form and sweet sound is charged with teaching for us. Had we eyes to see and ears to hear. You can go for a walk in the woods, and you can never see the divine name inscribed on a leaf. But if you have eyes to see, you can recognize that nature is teeming with the things of God. Again, it doesn't force itself upon us. More recently, I went to the Charlotte Mason family camp in August, and uh, I had a lot of pressures from work, and so my family got there the first day. I didn't make it until like the second to last day. And uh, again, deeply distressed over a completely different problem, but a torturous problem that I was experiencing between work and friendship. And I was distraught. And there was the men's campfire, and I got in time just for the men's campfire. And we went out, and we sat around the campfire, just the guys, and I was sitting next to somebody. And, you know, for whatever reason, for better or for worse, I said, you know, I'm just going to take a risk. And this poor gentleman sitting next to me, I'm just going to tell him, like, what I'm struggling with. And, uh, you know, the thing about risks, you take a risk, is that sometimes you take a risk and you get a good outcome, and sometimes you don't get such a good outcome. And so, bless his heart, I mean, he was a wonderful man, but as I started to open up and sort of telling the, the as I recounted my, my pain, I was started to relive it again. And so my spirit is sinking, and then I'm hoping that somehow this poor man will be able to say some magical word that will solve my problems for me. And he had, and, and he had nothing. I mean, if, I mean, no, I mean, I'm not going to say that. He actually said, yeah, that is really bad. And he, and he said, like, and he talked about, you know, almost like similar things if he was in that position. And, and it just, like, I thought, my burden has just increased and so I couldn't stay for the rest of the bonfire. I'm like, I can't, I have to leave this place. And so it was a bit of a walk through the dark from the campfire back to, back to the, ca the cabin or whatever, you know, whatever you call the, the, the lodge that uh, Barbara and, and my kids were staying in. And as I walked and as the weight was dwelling upon me, I came 
to a place where there was total silence because the, the fire was far behind me, the lodge was way ahead of me, and I started to hear those articulate voices, the sounds of summer. And the insects were speaking to me in a voice that no one at the campfire could speak to me. And in the sounds of the insects and in the smell of the summer air and in the sense of nature about me, I began to receive peace. I began to receive peace. What was more important to me, the outward invisible sign or the inward and spiritual grace that was conveyed? What is the outward and visible sign? It's how we observe nature. What is the inward and spiritual grace? It's the gift of contentment, simplicity, humility, and healing. Where do these things come from? Are these, do these come to us without the operation of God? Isn't this the grace of God to give us these things? Is God really operating? Charlotte Mason said that he's inscribed his name on every leaf. If you doubt that, read Jonathan Edwards. Read what Jonathan Edwards had to say about nature. But it doesn't force itself upon us. We have to have eyes to hear and ears to hear. And yet the question still lingered for me. This still, how is this really a sacrament? How do all of these pieces come together and why? And it began to, as I further studied Charlotte Mason's writings, I began to hone in on what I believe is the key that causes all of these ideas to work together. I believe that John chapter 6 represents a master idea for Charlotte Mason. A master idea is a phrase she uses occasionally, and there's a few master ideas she refers to. I believe that this is one of them. From the ESV, John chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eat of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us this flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the passage that Ainsley narrated when she was six years old. And she grasped these words of Christ and shared, this, shared them with us on Friday night. The Bread of Life, Charlotte Mason's Savior of the World, six-volume poetry set, which contains her poetic reflections on the Gospels and the life and words of Christ. She had a poem about this passage. And in this poem, she creates a kind of, uh, of a dialogue between people who were attending and watching this, uh, this, this incident. The first speaker observes and says, a man, like other men, stands in our midst and cries, I am bread, and you must eat or die. I am the sole sustenance of all the world. Mark you, not for the Jews he comes, the world, not only the Jews, but the whole world shall share this sacrament, his flesh. All men shall come and eat, and there's to spare his flesh as men eat sacrificial lamb. The second speaker, he says, hunger have I. I'm hungry. I'm fainting of heart. I'm sickening at my soul. I have sickening at my soul that no man has ever offered to appease. The third person 
My spirit too has fainted. There was not in heaven above on earth that could fill the void that gaping ached in me. And then he came. He came. And his word filled all my hunger. He is bread. I know I have eaten and am filled. The fifth person said, What if he saith to us, children of men, your least part is your body. Behold, there's meat to those incessant gnawing hunger pains that make a man faint at full board of his life. There is one bread that shall satisfy a man. Ho, all ye hungry, come. That bread am I. So Charlotte Mason takes this passage of John chapter 6, and she says that Christ is the answer for the hungers of your heart. She describes these men who are observing, and they're saying, I have felt this gnawing hunger for all my life, and nothing in heaven and nothing on earth has been able to satisfy it. Nothing. And yet Christ came, and he was able to fill it, and it was his word that came and filled it. And I believe that's the key to understanding why these pieces work together and why we have this instrumental unity. Charlotte Mason wrote in volume two, read these words and think about them. She said, does this doctrine of ideas as the spiritual food needful to sustain the immaterial life throw any light on the doctrines of the Christian religion? Remember Charlotte Mason, her ninth principle, she said that the person is a spiritual organism and feeds on living ideas. Living ideas are what make us grow. What does Charlotte Mason say next? She says, yes, this doctrine of ideas as being what causes life and growth, that does shed light on Christian doctrine. Because when Jesus said, the bread of life, the water of life, the word by which man lives, the meat to eat, which ye know not of, and much more, these cease to be figurative expressions, except that we must use the same words to name the corporeal and the incorporeal sustenance of man. We understand, moreover, how ideas emanating from our Lord and Savior which are of his essence, are the spiritual meat and drink of his believing people. We find it no longer a hard saying nor a dark saying that we must sustain our spiritual ideas upon him, even as our bodies upon bread. Where do these living ideas come from? These living ideas that sustain life and cause growth? They emanate from our Lord and Savior. The living ideas come from Christ. The living ideas that come from Christ are the spiritual meat and drink of his believing people. That is the claim. We consume Christ's body when we read and narrate living ideas. I've heard strong, strong objections to this statement. Strong, strong objections to this idea. For example, when I... I've had one person come up to me um, quite indignant and said that when Jesus in John chapter 6 said that you must eat the body of Christ, she said this refers only to the Eucharist and uh, that it is a gross misinterpretation of Christ's words to apply this idea of his body and and, uh, blood to refer to this broader concept of consuming the living ideas. But I think it's important to note that scripture itself does not limit the use of the phrase the body of Christ just to the Eucharist. We're all the body of Christ, you know that? We're the church. We read in Ephesians, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So first of all, we have to understand that the body of Christ is used in scripture in broader ways. 
In fact, many commentaries even interpret the phrase, eat the flesh of the Son of Man, as referring to something broader than simply the Eucharist. Here's one commentary. This is the Bible Knowledge Commentary that says, drinking his blood in John chapter 6 is another bold figure of speech. Jesus was speaking of his making atonement by his death and giving life to those who personally appropriate him. Faith in Christ's death brings eternal life. But when we think of what may be included in the phrase, the body of Christ, it might be helpful to think of how Christ is referred to as the word of God. So John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The Greek word in this passage is logos. But logos is a difficult word to translate from the Greek into English. It doesn't only mean word, it also means reason, and it means meaning. It means, perhaps, could we go as far as to say idea? The meaning of logos in John, one commentator said, in, in uh, commenting on John 1.1 and 1, the use of the word logos, Jesus is none other than God's creative, life-giving, light-giving word. Jesus, the logos, who has come to earth in the flesh, is the power of God that created the world and the reason of God that sustains the world. As logos has the double meaning of thought and speech, so Christ is related to God as the word to the idea. The word being not merely a name for the idea, but the idea itself expressed. The thought is the inward word. Christ, logos, the idea of God expressed. So if we think about it in this way, we can start thinking about a sacrament of education. Uh, my friend, Dr. Benjamin Bernier, he arrived at a very similar conclusion to me from his study of Charlotte Mason's writings completely independently. And uh, after I had begun to form these thoughts, I read that he had written that this understanding of Christ as the source of all living ideas gives teaching and learning a sacramental and sacred nature as well as a universal character. This is Benjamin Bernier who wrote his uh, dissertation, his doctoral dissertation on Charlotte Mason's theology of education. Benjamin Bernier wrote, this sacramental understanding of reality revealing various degrees of the same principle of life offers us a key to trace Mason's ontology, epistemology, and theory of education. Mason assumed that the identity of Christ as the living word reveals the true nature of all existing and living things in particular and their meaning in relation to Christ who is also the truth and the life. This connection gives nature a sacred character and provides a foundation for learning as an instrument for growth in the spiritual life. Once we understand this, we can understand a bit more about why the Holy Spirit would have such an interest in participating with us in an arithmetic lesson. Elsie Kitching makes the connection between Christ and the Holy Spirit in this wonderful passage. She talks about from the book of Genesis, there was once a great meeting in the king's dale, and as Abraham walked at the head of the chiefs, a mysterious and wonderful ancient king priest came forth to meet him. Legend said it was the Holy Ghost. We know it was Melchizedek. To him alone, Abraham bows down and pays tribute, and from him alone will Abraham receive anything, the bread and wine which he accepts for his young men. Just so, the true teacher, you guys, just so the true teacher leads his scholars to receive at the hand of the king priest of knowledge the Holy Ghost, for he shall teach you all things, the bread and wine by which their minds are sustained. You bring your children to the feast, and it's a sacred feast of bread and wine. 
It's the king's table that you're coming to. When where the king is at, the Holy Spirit is at. So therefore, when we're consuming the bread of life, therefore we understand why God, the Holy Spirit, is himself personally the imparter of knowledge, the instructor of youth. We conceive of the divine teaching as cooperating with ours in a child's arithmetic lesson. And so then Charlotte Mason gives us this very clear application. She says, therefore, all of our teaching of children should be given reverently with the humble sense that we are invited in this matter to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. And she says elsewhere that if it's possible for us to cooperate with the Holy Spirit, it is also possible for us to hinder the Holy Spirit. This notion of the Holy Spirit as being an agent in our education carries with it a responsibility. If it is true, and if we accept it by faith, then we have a responsibility to teach in a manner that cooperates with the Holy Spirit rather than hinders him. And I'm not saying that we can stop the Holy Spirit, but I'm saying that we have a choice of whether we want to cooperate or hinder. So I want to talk about some images and applications. So I'm going to tell a bit of a a story here. I knew a, a gentleman who had done some prison ministry. And he really had this desire to do to celebrate communion with the inmates, but he wasn't allowed to bring in bread and wine. And so he had this idea that he would go to the vending machine or something like that in the prison and he could get a Twinkie and he could get a Pepsi. And he wanted to know, would that be an appropriate thing to do? Can I serve communion with a Twinkie and a Pepsi? And I don't want to, I'm not, I mean, I, with all respect for this, this gentleman and his desire, which was to honor the Lord, I want to use this as a parable for so much of what happens in education. Because we're invited to the Lord's Supper of education. And do we bring bread and wine or do we bring Twinkies and a Pepsi? Let's think a little bit about what Twinkies and a Pepsi might look like. The outward and visible activity. What does the outward and visible activity look like for a grammar lesson? Charlotte Mason says that such teaching as enwraps a child's mind in folds of many words, that his thought is unable to penetrate, which gives him rules and definitions and tables in lieu of or instead of ideas. This is the teaching which excludes and renders impossible the divine cooperation. These are the Twinkies that you can't, the child's mind is just enfolded in this and they're hungering for bread but they can't find it because of the way the teaching is being conducted. But true, direct, and humble teaching of grammar without pedantry and without verbiage is we may venture to believe what a sacred thought accompanied by the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. There's two ways to teach, she says. One of them hinders the Holy Spirit and the other one opens the door for him to operate. What about geography? There's a great workshop on geography yesterday. Are we teaching geography? Then the child discovers with the explorer. He journeys with the traveler. He receives impressions new and vivid, living from some other mind, which is immediately receiving these impressions. It's living. It's not fact. It's alive. And why is living so important? Because the Holy Spirit, according to the Nicene Creed, he's the Lord and the giver of life. Where there's life is, that's where the Holy Spirit is. Is your geography teaching filled with life? What about history? Is he learning history? His concern is not with strings of names and of dates, nor with nice little reading-made easy stories. We recognize that history for him is to live in the lives of those strong personalities which at any given time impress themselves most upon their age and country. Give him 
living thought in this kind. And you make possible, you make possible the cooperation of the living teacher. You can say, well, that's not fair. That's not fair to say that I have to use a certain kind of history book to make possible that the Holy Spirit's going to cooperate with you? What are you talking about, Art? That's unreasonable. I'm a believer. I'm doing things in faith. What does it matter what history book I use? It mattered to Charlotte Mason. Theologically, it mattered to her. This is not about which story makes you feel good as a teacher. This is not about which story drives the better results from your child. According to Charlotte Mason, this is about inviting the presence of the Holy Spirit by using living books. That's the claim. That's what a Charlotte Mason education is. Living books matter. Living history matters. Is he teaching music? Again, let him once perceive the beautiful laws of harmony, the personality, so to speak, of music looking out upon him from among the queer little black notes, and the piano lesson has ceased to be drudgery. There's a way to teach piano that's not drudgery. What about art? We permit no pseudo-art to be in the same house with our children. We shall inspire our children with those great ideas which shall create a demand anyway for great art. Pseudo-art. We don't allow it. I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm just telling you. <laughs> that there are some whom God has whispered in the ear, and they have a message to us, and it's our responsibility to receive it. Give your children the great art. Fill your home with the great art. Because those ideas emanate from our Savior himself. We are told that the spirit is life. Therefore, that which is dead, dry as dust, mere bare bones, can have no affinity with him, the Holy Spirit. Can do no other than smother and deaden his vitalizing influence. A first condition of this vitalizing teaching is that all the thought which we offer to our children shall be living thought. No mere dry summaries of facts will do. Therefore, children must have books, living books. The best are not too good for them. Anything less than the best is not good enough. The idea here is, I've just talked about geography, history, music, piano lessons, art, and pseudo-art, and history, and literature. But there's a principle that can be applied to any subject. And Charlotte Mason says that with this thought of a child to begin with, we shall perceive that whatever is stale and flat and dull to us must needs be stale and flat and dull to him, and also that there is no subject which has not a fresh and living way of approach. I don't care if you want to teach computer programming, if you want to teach subatomic particles, every subject has a fresh and living way of approach. Find that path. Find that path. So when we invite the Holy Spirit to use all of these different lessons to receive these ideas that are emanating from Christ himself, what is the result of this teaching? The result is, according to Charlotte Mason, that by degrees children get that knowledge of God, which is the object of that final daily prayer in our beautiful liturgy, the prayer of St. Chrysostom, grant us in this world knowledge of thy truth. And all other knowledge which they obtain gathers round and illuminates this. Math. What is your goal in math instruction? Is it to build the most efficient, fastest human calculator? Or is it to lead a child into the knowledge of God? What is your curriculum doing? I'm not sure how many calculations your child will need to do in heaven. But your child can go into the throne room in heaven and say, Heavenly Father, 
I've known that you are the absolute, unchanging, never-failing, completely true God from the day that I knew that 2 plus 2 equals 4, and it could never mean anything else. That's how math contributes to the knowledge of God. Every subject gathers around and eliminates this. God really operates in the things of science, in the things of art, in the things of practical everyday life. His God doth instruct him and doth teach him. Her God doth instruct her and teach her. Let this be the mother's key to the whole of the education of each boy and each girl. Not of our children, the divine spirit does not work with the nouns of multitude, but with each single child. Because he is infinite, the whole world is not too great a school for this indefatigable teacher. And because he is infinite, he is able to give the whole of his infinite attention to the whole time to each one of his multitudinous pupils. But, the suitable disposition of the receiver, but like this, like other good gifts, does not come by nature. It is the reward of humble and patient study. It is not in a day or a year that Fra Angelica will tell us of the beauty of holiness. Do you understand? It takes time. Don't be discouraged. If the first picture study doesn't have the result that you were looking for, don't be discouraged if the first narration doesn't have the result you were looking for. Don't be discouraged if the music doesn't speak to your child the way it speaks to your heart. Don't be discouraged if, if the poem doesn't mean anything to your child and much less doesn't mean anything to you. Just give it time. Humble, patient, humble and patient. That means not demanding, not expecting it's going to happen tomorrow. But at some point, the poetry will have a meaning to you. And once it does, it will have a meaning to your child as well. Maybe before, maybe a bit later. But boys religiously brought up turn out indifferent or ill. Exactly so when they have had the outward and visible signs without the inward part or thing signified. Of all sawdust, this is the driest. That's what Joseph Stalin got. He got the outward and visible signs. He was out in nature. He sang in the choir. He read the great books. But he didn't have the inward part. He didn't have the inward part. So what brings together all of these elements, the outward invisible sign, the inward and spiritual grace, the real operation of God, the suitable disposition of the receiver? Why do these all come together in education? I'll let Dr. Bernier answer that. This is the key to Mason's sacramental understanding of existence. The reason is because Jesus is the life and the bread. Life sustains life. The principle of life is one. All life is a manifestation of the life of God. The bread is made of the living seed. The wine is crushed from the living fruit. Food nourishes because it is living. The word of Christ feeds the soul of man. And so that's why I find this concept of the sacrament of education a helpful way to bring together these many different aspects of a Charlotte Mason education. Thank you. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to the Charlotte Mason Poetry audio blog. We hope you enjoyed the program.